Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Hi everybody, and welcome to Foibles. Today we've got another actress for you. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Carol Lombard. She is known as the queen of screwball comedy in the 1930s, and it's interesting, this one, because the history of this this particular episode is that I've always loved the movie To Be or Not To Be, which we will talk about more in depth later, and watched it again, had Zoe watch it this time, great, holds up, it's a five star for me, and she's great in it, just fantastic. And so somehow I was remembering her just being great overall. And a lot of people think she is. But I have to say, going back and watching her films, I don't think she's that good overall. I mean, there are a few things where she'll do, there's a certain way she can be, a certain kind of delivery that's really fantastic. But overall, as an actor, she's not a great actor. And her screwball um, behavior is actually fairly annoying. (laughs) It's in a the, little bit bombastic. It's totally bombastic. And she's, yeah, I mean, you're just like, shut up, you know. Um, so I don't really, but we, but we were into it. I mean, we were watching the films. So I'm like, okay, well, we, let's not let this go to waste. Let's share our hard-earned knowledge. Into it as in into our research and watching movies for this segment. We completed it. And I, what I found after doing the research is, She's probably, really, of everyone we have researched, the most likable, good person. So that made me feel okay about doing this because she had a you know, somewhat interesting life, a fairly interesting life. She was a very interesting, lively person. And you know, we'll tell you which movies of hers are good and worth watching. Um, and then otherwise, you know, if you're into Carol Lombard, obviously, the world is your oyster. But for me, one is excellent. One is good, and one is, like, passable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a little sparse in terms of recommendations. Yeah, it's, um, it's listed in, our, in the show notes. You can see the titles there, and we'll talk about them a little bit later. Also, side note, you're going to get some lovely white noise in the background, ASMR-type uh, noise. It's the sizzling of our Instapot, in which we're making <laughs> some cozy winter chili, so enjoy that. Yeah, who knows when this is coming out, but it's winter now. It's so. Christmas Day, actually. That's true. Present for you guys. Yeah. From us to you. Belated. So anyway, Carol Lombard, beautiful woman, very smart, very very vivacious, a very vivacious person. Uh, so we'll just kind of get into her life a little bit, and then we can talk about the movies that we liked, and then that'll be it. Yeah, and I don't really know anything. You've told me like a couple of anecdotes and stuff, so this is all new for me, too. All right, so getting started with her actual biography, uh, Carol Lombard was born in 1908. Her name, birth name was Jane Alice Peters, and she's a good old solid Midwestern girl born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's just about, I think, about as Midwestern as you can get, really. Fort Wayne uh, was a nice-sized town, a small city at the time. So, you know, she wasn't rural. She was an urban girl. And uh, her dad and mom were Frederick and Bessie Peters. And Bessie got uh, got a nickname of Totsie. (laughs) So 
<laughs> so Carol always called her Totsie, as it did her friends. And ultimately, Carol and her mother were extremely close, very, very, very close. Uh, and they stayed together uh, until the end of, of Carol. Well, until Literally the until the end of their lives. Lives, exactly, Which exactly. We'll, we'll talk about later. Yeah. So uh, she had two older brothers, one named Frederick. He was six years older, and he was called Fritz. And a second brother, Charles Stewart, and he was only two years older, and he was Tootie. <laughs> Tootie! And she just was... Uh, a role, what they called a tomboy in those days. She just was athletic as heck. She loved to run and jump and climb trees. She wanted to hang out with the boys. And, you know, at that time, there was just that really, that thing about the value of the boy over the girl. And so, you know, she kind of, I, I kind of think part of it was just being like a boy was better. Better. It was valued, even though she could be criticized for it by not being girlish enough. So you kind of can't win on that one. So she kind of went her own way, but she was like track and she was a track and field star in high school. She was a tennis player. She had had some little boxing lessons with her wow. brother. Well, her brother didn't like it, and she did, so she ended up being able to go to that. And ultimately, what happened? Her dad. Sad. It's a sad story. Before he married her mom, he had been in an industrial accident at work, and it impaired his leg. Now, I don't know if that meant that there was an amputation or it just made him limp or how, you know, but it was obviously very noticeable and impacted his life. Plus, he had been hit with something really heavy and it seems like he had headaches and that there might have been some concussion issues going on because he was in a lot of pain for a long time, kind of depressed. So ultimately, uh, he and Bessie kind of separated. And it was sort of couched as, oh, we're going to go on a visit to California. So when Carol was six, Bessie and the three children moved out to California. And basically they, um, they ended up in L.A. And this is, would have been in 19, oh, what, 1914. So Hollywood in the movies existed and you know, they had gone to the movies and they knew what they were. But, I mean, we're talking 1914. So this is the very beginnings of the industry. So it wasn't a big, big thing at that time. But it was the time when people were beginning to flood in to Hollywood. So, so they kind of were on that crest, even though they didn't go there because of that. Anyway, California, it was really nice. The uh, Bessie really loved it for the kids. Uh, the kids loved it because they could run around and play, and it just, you know, it was really great. And particularly for Carol because, or Jane, whichever you want, Alice Jane, whatever, we'll call her Carol, because she tended to have pretty weak lungs, and she was somebody who would easily get sick. Hmm. So being out in the mild climate of California and the warmth actually helped her a lot. Um, the father was, he was in a deadbeat, he was, you know, he was a decent guy. And so he sent them money. They didn't have much money. They weren't like real. They were probably like middle-ish class, maybe even a little lower than that. Uh, so he was able to send them money to live on. But Bessie had to be pretty frugal, pretty careful. But she was, and so they were okay. They, they were never like hanging on the lip of penury, you know, ready to be uh, homeless or anything like that. But the sad thing is, is that it seemed pretty apparent that Bessie and Frederick still loved each other. But there just didn't seem to be a way for them to be together and be happy. So he stayed in uh, Indiana, and he'd come out and visit every once in a while. And uh, Bessie just never moved back. Hmm. Um, so there wasn't any animosity. They never got divorced. So 
that's just kind of how it uh, how it worked out. And because there wasn't a lot of money, um, and this was not horribly unusual, one of the brother, the oldest brother, Fritz, he was like a very responsible guy and he really kind of stepped into the parental shoes the father's shoes and he would be acting all fatherly to Carol and trying to protect her and tell her what to do and that was probably a little oppressive for her but it was also you know uh, meant lovingly and he wanted to take care of them so when he was 16 he quit school and he got a job as a stock boy at a <clears throat> very upscale department store it was called Bullock's so it's kind of like our Nordstrom's today <laughs> Bullock's Yes, and uh, he stayed there, and 50 years later, he retired. He worked his way to the top from Stock Boy, yeah. and then retired. Classic. Yeah, classic American tale. So they're hanging out. She was going to high school, and she ended up kind of catching the acting bug. She did love movies, just loved them, and so she ended up wanting to, to get into them and uh, do, do some acting. So what happened was, uh, you know, ultimately she did change her name. So the name Carol Lombard came from the fact that Carol, she really liked the name, and she had met a Swedish girl in junior high, and uh, this girl introduced her to tennis, and so, you know, that was really special for, Car uh, for Carol, so she decided, well, I'll take that name, Carol. Also, she knew this family, well, her, her family were friends with this other family, and the dad's name was Harry Lombard, and Harry had a bad leg. And so she just kind of associated him with her dad. And so it's just kind of in an odd way, a very oblique nod to her dad, or hmm. an homage to her dad, that she took this name Lombard. And it's a good stage name. I yeah. Think. Oh, it's a great name. Yeah. 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 I think it's, it's more memorable than Alice Jane Peters, which is a very nice name. Yeah, it's not one of your, uh, what was Cary Grant's name? Oh, Archibald Leach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not Archibald Leach. <laughs> For sure, exactly. As I said, she was very close to her mom. And one of, the, one of the most important things that her mother provided to her was that her mother was really a feminist. And she was really supported Carol in being who she wanted to be. So she wanted to take, you know, she let her take those boxing lessons. She let her be, you know, be an athlete. Um, she didn't oppress her with um, trying to squash her vivacity or uh, change her from wanting to go out and have fun. And, and uh, she kind of really trusted her. And I think they trusted each other, which is probably why Carol didn't end up getting into too much trouble, um, pregnancy-wise, if you will, or whatever, or drinking-wise. So her mother also got into the Bahai, Bahai, do you know how to say B-A-H-A-I? Bahai? Bahai, yeah. Her mother got into the Bahai faith, which is not, to my understanding, it's not like a more tra traditional religion where there's like a big stone church and there's all these edicts and it's very, it's very hierarchical, very patriarchal. Apparently, it's, uh, one of its tenets are that men and women um, are equal. Mm. And she really, um, Bess, really raised Carol to feel that she was equal. And I think that has a lot to do with Carol's success in the film industry and her success with people because she felt equal. Now, it's interesting to see some of her behaviors around men later, and you can see how the other part of the culture that, that glorified men above women and um, that it did impact her and it did sort of make her um, identify with a, with her male side, if you will, or with a male um, with male values and so on and so forth. Um, so you do see that too. 
um, and how like she's willing to give up her career for a man and all this kind of stuff. But we'll talk about that when we get to uh, Clark Gable. Little heat, little teaser there. So Carol wanted to be in the movie, so her mom got her some acting lessons. So Carol went and uh, you know had a few acting lessons, which were kind of the old style. They really were about theater kind of acting. And when she was 12, she was playing baseball, apparently. And there was a very um, prolific and famous at the time director named Alan Dwan. We've, we've seen some of his movies, so I can't think of any offhand, but he was directing during the silent and early talkie period. And Alan Dwan was, uh, saw her uh, you know, playing baseball, apparently, and he kind of knew the family, so it wasn't like, oh, he's just a total stranger. So she got cast in her very first movie because um, the character was a tomboy in the movie, uh. and he saw her doing that and, and decided, oh, oh, she would be really good at that. And so um, ultimately uh, she got cast in that film. And then as like twelve year twelve year old, yeah, as a tomboy, and so she ended up um, really loving it, wanting really cemented that this is what she wanted to do with her life, but the problem was she just really couldn't get any traction. She didn't get any other parts. Just you know, time went on. About three years later, when she was fifteen, she had an opportunity to audition for Charlie Chaplin for the famous movie The Gold Rush. Mm. Now, little background on Chaplin. Not a great guy. Great artist, not a great guy. I won't go into it in too much detail, but he was 35 at the time he was casting this. He really liked teenage girls a lot. Yeah. And in fact, it was known. So Carol went to the audition with her mother. And Chaplin didn't like that very much. Uh, so she was able to audition, but she didn't get the part. Now, we don't know why. Was it because she really wasn't right? Or was it because... She had responsible parental supervision. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So what he Chaplin ended up doing, just FYI, he uh, cast a 16-year-old named Lita Gray. And and if you watch Gold Rush, Lita Gray is no sh- great shakes at all. She's really kind of like, oh, she's there, she's fine. You know, she's taking up space. Um, but we find out later that uh, what in the early... Oh, no, that's right. Lita Gray is not in the film. You'll have to cut that out, so... He, so he cast a 16-year-old named Lita Gray, and before they started filming, she was pregnant. Ugh. I know, ah, so gross. And he married her. Oh, wow. Okay. He didn't want to. He was yeah. forced to marry her, and because it would have been statutory rape otherwise. And he ended up then casting and hiring a woman, uh, an actor named Georgia, Georgina Gray, who is, I'm sorry, Georgia Gray, who was fine. So anyway, I won't talk more about Chaplin, but he was bleh. She's out there trying to get a job. She doesn't get this one. But when she gets to be about 16 or so, she tries to go get a contract and get work at the Vitagraph studio, which, of course, is now defunct. But the Vitagraph was a pretty important studio, but it wasn't, like, one of the top-tier studios. And uh, when she went in to get her job, they said, well, you know, we really don't care for the name Jane. Jane's too boring. It's too mundane or whatever so they had uh, her change her first name and that's when she became Carol Peters so then she was cast as Carol Peters and there's an alternate story that uh, wasn't the Swedish girl that she met but that there was actually a very famous tennis player named Carol Patterson but who knows anyway she changed to Carol now when you look at her online and in almost all of her films she's Carol with an E at the end but at this point, she's just regular Carol with no E at the end. 
So we, we hadn't gotten to the E yet. So the name evolves. By this point, she knew what she wanted to do. I mean, she was enjoying school. She was, like I said, a, a, a track star, and, and she got along, and she had a great social life and everything, but she wanted to get going and with her career. You know, and in those days, really, they were casting girls of 14, 15, 16 for major roles, and by the time you were 24, 25, you're, you're too old. I mean, that was just that really ageist kind of way that they approach things. Not for men, just for women. And so she wanted to kind of get going. So in uh, 1924, um, she was 16, and she was able legally to quit school and go out to work. And her mother agreed with her. She said, yeah, that's what you want to do. I get you, and was able to support that. You're pretty enough. <laughs> yeah. you're def- Doesn't seem unrealistic. <laughs> She's definitely pretty enough. Definitely. Well, also, it, you know, because, like, Hollywood was still a really small, small place. I mean, this is the time just like when people like Rudolph Valentino, which we did a whole series on, where he was just coming up. By 24, he had become one of the most famous people in the world. But, you know, this is the time when people were living in boarding houses and there weren't, you know, big neighborhoods and Bel Air and mansions yet. That was just starting to happen. And so... It was a small community is what I'm trying to say. And her mother um, knew people in in the business. And she knew uh, a woman named Luella Parsons. Well, Luella Parsons was one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. Luella Parsons was the gossip columnist for the Hearst newspapers. So she was huge. She was really, really important. And at this time, her rival, Hedda Hopper, who is the mother uh, of who? William Hopper. William Hopper, who we love William Hopper. See our episode on Perry Mason. Yes, exactly. Hedda Hopper was still a young woman trying to be an actress. Oh, okay. And trying to get acting parts at this point. So Luella was it. She was the game. So she was uh, very, very... So her mother was really pretty connected. So Luella decides to help Carol because Luella's own daughter also wanted to be an actor. And so I think that she, and it was about the same age as Carol, so I think she felt sympathy, you know, and, and kind of motherly maybe toward her and wanted to help her That's out. That's nice. Was Luella a better person than Hedda Hopper? No, not really. She, <laughs> but politically, she wasn't so nasty. Okay. H- uh, Hedda Hopper was a very, uh, she was p- very pro-McCarthy hearings and the Red Scare, and she was, she was really, really virulently... Uh, Anti-communist. Ultra-right. Well, she's also ultra-right-wing, too, in every way. Uh, She and John Wayne were best buds. I mean, they got along really well, right? Um, But Luella was also, uh, tended to be a nasty piece of work. She was, ended up being an alcoholic. And, you know, she used all of the blackmail tactics to get people to give her exclusive on their private lives and would dig into people's lives and try to get dirt on them and and also would even blackmail them. In fact, it, it's believed that she was blackmailing William Randolph Hearst over an incident on his yacht where Thomas Ince got shot and killed. And supposedly she knew something. And this is what kept her, you know, in, in you know, in her position. Don't know if that's true, honestly. That's all rumor and conjecture, but it it has been bruited about. But she, it is known that she did blackmail uh, movie stars and things like that to get. Ding. Yeah. So not. So she could be nice, you know. Yeah, apparently. If okay. she if she delighted her, <laughs> if she liked her. So anyway, she helped Carol get her first contract 
at Fox Studios. Hmm. So she went to Fox, and Carol was getting paid $65 a week on this contract. Was That's pretty for, good for a 16-year-old. Yeah, for those days, for definitely sure. But Fox didn't like her last name because Peters is another name for what bodily organ? Yep, they thought it was too phallic. <laughs> they thought it was an embarrassing name, Peters. So she ended up then she's that's where she chose Lombard. So now huh. she's now she's Carol Lombard when she's sixteen. And what's really funny is that like twenty years later, Jean Peters became a star and she ended up marrying Howard Hughes, by the way. So, you know Yeah, who's to say whether they were right or not. I know there would have been a problem. <laughs> it kinda just depends on who I guess who's there and what their mind is. Is your mind in the gutter or not? In this case, yes. She really liked her name a lot. And ultimately, she did change, legally change it to Carol Lombard because she did like it. So she went home and she was practicing her signature, her new signature for Carol Lombard and all that. Unlike somebody like Cary Grant, who never really cared for his stage name, he always felt like he was Archie Leach. And in fact, he had a dog, a Celium Terrier, who he named Archie Leach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. And in fact, there are other, there's a movie, I forget which one it is, where one of the characters, or he mentions somebody named Archie Leach. Oh. In the movie. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry, don't know the name of it offhand. Um, anyway, uh, so basically at this point, she ended up doing a lot of shorts. She really didn't get any starring roles, or they didn't seem to really be building her up. The way, you know, like if they go, oh, that's a star. So they start to give you small small parts and then bigger parts and, you know, do this whole build-up thing. And so, but she still had, was having a great time. I mean, she's 16. So she still has her high school friends. And then she's meeting people in the movie business, like young people like herself. So she would go out every evening to the Coconut Grove. The Ooh. Coconut Grove was a place to go, man. They had real palm trees and real monkeys. Wow. In fact, I guess it was a little bit dangerous on the dance floor because there's like monkey shit and people like slip in it. Oh my God. And fall down and stuff. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And she uh, would go on uh, group dates. She's, you know, Carol, she's really had command. I mean, she didn't, she wasn't selling herself. But again, she had a really loving uh, family, particularly her mother and her and her brothers. And uh, she was not destitute, whereas, like, she made friends and would hang out with Joan Crawford. And this is before Joan Crawford, just when Joan Crawford was starting to break in, because Joan Crawford was considered the quintessential flapper. She was, like, the flap, the flappinest girl. She was doing the Charleston. I don't think I ever showed you. We have to watch Dance Girl Dance, that, or, or Our Dancing Daughters is the other one, mm. that Joan Crawford was really big, big breakthrough. Uh, but anyway, Joan Crawford was selling herself to every man she could get in contact with to get to ra- to raise herself up. But she had would live. She came from the most destitute, direst poverty, right? Ever, and she had no education. And she came from a really abusive family, and obviously was abused in many ways. And so she really fought herself up from like the very depths. Whereas Carol had this great family, and Really, she hadn't gotten into Hollywood. She would have just done something else, you know. Um, she really wanted to, but it wouldn't have been the end of her life, you know. Uh, but anyway, she and, and uh, Joan made friends, and uh, Carol loved to dance, too. And so they would have Charleston contests at the Coconut Grove until late in the night. And you know, <laughs> lots of dancing and hanging out with guys and, you know, just... Sounds fun. I mean, she's having a great time. 
It's like Nancy Drew. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> what I was thinking about. If anybody's ever read the 1930s versions of Nancy Drew, we kind of <laughs> like that. So time is going by, so she hangs out for a year, has a great time, but it, when she was 17 in 1926, she'd been at Fox about a year, and she was riding home with uh, a friend of hers. His name was Heine Cooper, should you care. <laughs> Heine. And they were uh, stopped at a traffic light, and the car that was in front of them on this hill just rolled back into them. And they didn't have the kind of safety glass windshields that we have now. So just rolling back into the car shattered the windshield that they were in. And this big shard of, shard of glass flew into her face. Ow. And when you watch her films, look at the left side of her face. Look very carefully. Look at her, at her eyelid and then down by her mouth. And you'll see, scar- you'll, you can still actually see the scarring, even though it was pretty well hidden. But it was a huge scar. I mean, just, it just sliced her face open from the outside of her eye down to the outside of her mouth. I mean, and she's 17. She's beautiful. She rides a lot on her beauty for her uh, possible career. Because Carol Lombard was never like, oh, you know, like, say, a Marlena Dietrich, where, where she identified with her beauty to the point where this was going to be the end of her life or something like that. But it was pretty devastating. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. Especially the way this culture views women and their faces. Yeah. And, and then it was... And the recovery time taken out of her career, assuming she'd even be able to work again. Right. And the fact is, is that plastic surgery was brand new. She was lucky. A few years earlier, there wouldn't have been any plastic surgery. But the, the period of World War One brought the idea and the advances into plastic surgery because of the just horrific facial injuries mm. that the soldiers uh, experienced. There had really hadn't been plastic surgery really before that. And it began to be developed because of World War One. And now we're in, at 26, so it started to be continual, continuously um, tweaked and, and updated. And then, of course, people who had money were beginning to go, oh, you can make my nose better? You know, that kind of can right. make my eyes look better. So, you know, it, it, it could start to be used for that. But it's very in the baby steps. So it is amazing to me that she looks as good as she, that she does. Because yeah. she looks fantastic. Yeah, and you wouldn't notice unless you knew what to look for. Right, exactly. And so what happened was, is uh, her mother comes rushing in and sees what's happened. And her mother not only is not really like thinking about the oh the career you know cause she was not a stage mother in fact sometimes she would not, maybe not be as uh active because she didn't want to come off as a stage mother because mm. she hated people who were like using their children that way but she looked at her and she thought well you know the 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 social and cultural implications for her daughter of having a big scar on her face it was just gonna make her life hell so her mother just goes into gear and I think this is where their relationship is cemented for life because she goes into absolute advocacy for her daughter. Uh, she goes out and she hears about this, this technique that she's heard about plastic surgery. She goes out. She finds a doctor somewhere because there are very few of them. She finds a doctor. She gets him to come to uh, the hospital because nobody at the hospital knew about a specialist. They didn't know who a plastic wow. surgery. That's crazy. I know. Well, because it was so new. And so she's the one who went out and found this doctor. She gets him to come in before they touch Carol's face. And he says that basically he can do the surgery. If they want the best possible outcome for Carol, they ha- he has to do the surgery without anesthetic. Oh. 
because if they give her anesthetic, her whole face will relax and all the muscles will relax and there won't be this, uh, the same good outcome because some, for some reason the, ma- the muscles need to be tonified or, you know, yeah. it can't be slack. To get it tight, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, and so basically he said if they got relaxed, the scar would just be so much worse. And so Carol decides that she's willing to do that. So there's a four-hour surgery with no... No anesthetic. Horrific. Unbelievable. The, then she had to keep her face motionless for a week. Oof. And then there were more surgeries after that, though she could have anesthetic for those because yeah. the initial had happened. And her mother just, just was a tigress for her. And she never forgot it. She never was forgot her gratitude for that. You would do that for me, right? Oh, totally. You would do that for me, wouldn't you? Of course. Oh, thanks. Um, can I ask kind of a, maybe a silly question? No. Why do they call plastic surgery plastic surgery? You know, I don't know exactly. I've always had it in my mind that it had something to do with the plastic meant molding or that it's something that you could shape something. Plasticity. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of what I thought. Okay. But we should look that up. and Yeah, maybe we'll include it in the show notes. Yeah, there we go. And so, obviously, this injury put a stop to her career, put it on hold. And and the, the sad thing is is that she was just up for a leading role in a big, huge film with John Barrymore. Oh, wow. John Barrymore, the grandfather of Drew Barrymore. Yeah, the biggest actor of his time for a while anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. Huge, huge, huge star. Well, he was a huge star in the theater. He did like the Hamlet up for his generation kind of thing. And I've always wanted a picture. There's a photograph of him as Hamlet lying on his side stage, looking off into the, just like, oh my God, that is so quintessential. Beautiful, beautiful and historic. And I don't know, I've always wanted that photograph. Mm -hmm. But every time I look for it, it's like, if you want to print, it's like, I'm not paying $90 for that. (laughs) Forget it. So Barrymore migrated over to film because he could make a lot of money, tons of money. And although his films were never that successful the prestige he carried the Barrymore name because it wasn't just him his brother and his sister were very famous actor Lionel Barrymore once one of the worst actors in the world I <laughs> hate this guy I know he's awful we always say that because he comes up as an extra in a, some certain movies not even extra about. he's lead I mean he's a star I know but he's an extra in a lot of the movies we've talked about and so we always say that we hate oh, him yeah yeah that's true and the sister Ethel, who was less less of a film person, more theater, but still. Their parents were great actors. And his aunt was one of the most, the biggest theatrical stars in England, because their family originally came from England, named Ellen Terry. And, I mean, just the, the family just goes back forever in, in terms of acting. So the prestige, because the industry was so new, and it was created by these parvenus who were immigrants, who had been really poor, and came over, and they're just they're they're clawing their way to the top, and they don't have a lot of education or class or whatever. So they would get really excited about having these classy uh, actors uh, in their films. So Barrymore was one of those. They were going to do The Tempest, Shakespeare. Oh wow! Yeah, she was going to be Miranda, I guess. I would imagine that that would have been her, and 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 actually, they she had auditioned for it, and Barrymore was going to hire her. Wow. Say la vie, no good. And then Fox canceled her contract based on the clause in there that they're responsible for their physical appearance. Wow. So that clause was used like if you gain too much weight, they would 
nix you. They yeah. would nix you, or you started to look too old, or whatever, <laughs> you know. Now, this is where Carol, the spirit of Carol Lombard, will make you love her. Now, remember, she's 17. Her first reaction is depression. Totally makes sense. Uh, my life is ruined and everything. And then, at some point, I guess she'd been reading some things and thinking about it because she was sort of inactive for a while. She decided that she was going to f- live fully in the present and bring as much joy to as many people as possible. And not just out there, but people that she knew directly, which is the big thing. That's the hardest thing. And she said, especially for her mother. She was going to give her mother as much joy as possible, which is so That's sweet. That's great. Yeah, because her mother fought for her. And she also said she was thought, I'm going to fight for the life I want. She wasn't going to like, go, I got this going. No, she was going to fight for it. She was going to have the surgery. She was going to do what she needed to do. She was going to get out there. And the fact is that she really had always been able to get along with people, very sociable, you know, just that really likable kind of person. And But th- this new philosophy made her decide that she was going to be a true friend to anybody that she could and that she was going to have joy every moment that she could in her life. And she did. And that's what makes her so likable. Like, people would come and try to condole with her and, oh, poor Carol, I'm so sorry. And she would say, and she would say to them, and a 17-year-old says, isn't it better to have a scar on your face than on your soul? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's great. And so you're right, Carol. <laughs> it only took her a year to recover, which, again, is pretty amazing. And, of course, in a way, she was so young, so the knitting would, would happen really quite quickly. Right. So then when she's 18, she gets another contract to a different studio. It had originally been called the Keystone Studios, and people who know the Keystone Cops would be familiar with that. It was run by Max Sennett, so it was his new studio. And Max Sennett was known for the silent films. And of course, this is we're still in the silent era here, 1927. And it's the wacky physical comedy, people falling down, total slapstick, stupid jokes, all this stuff. That was Max Sennett, his style. There are a couple of different stories about how she got this contract at Max Sennett's studio. One was it was offered to her and she didn't want it because she thought it was too low brow. I tend to not believe that one just because it doesn't sound like her, that she seemed game for everything and not, not snooty at all. But there was that story that went around that she was told, oh, but Gloria Swanson started with Max Sennett. And she's like, oh, well, Gloria Swanson other story is that she sought the contract out, that she pursued it and tried to get it, which that sounds more right to me. But either in either case, she ended up with the contract, and it was a great, great place for her. It's actually the perfect place for her. It had the same kind of attitude, freewheeling, um, you know, just very, like, easygoing in terms of the relationships and a lot of fun, a very, very high-spirited group of people. And you see a lot of that on screen. And Max Sennett really encouraged that. It sounds like he was kind of a mentor to her because he insisted that all the people there know about filmmaking and so that they understand cameras and they understand lenses and what you do and how you make a movie, not just getting in front of it and doing something. So uh, she learned really a lot. She also learned a lot of physical humor, falling down, pratfalls, just all kinds of, you know, crazy stunts and things that we saw at those uh, films. And in fact, you can go onto YouTube and watch these films, a lot of them. The one that I watched was from 28, it was called Run Girl Run, where she's a track star, which is kind of perfect for her. And it's interesting to see her when she's so young, because she was actually probably like 15 pounds heavier than she is 
later. Later, she is so thin. I mean, she's really, that uh, style was for the women to be extremely slender. And in Run, Girl, Run, she looks more like a really, she looks more athletic. So anyway, they they just had really dumb jokes. And, and again, they had the intertitle cards because this was not sound. And so her name uh, was Norma Nurmi. And the card read, Norma Nurmi, star athlete, once ran a mile in almost nothing and was nearly expelled for it. <laughs> so all those kind of dumb little double entendre jokes and everything. And one of the things that's very irritating about them that I don't find funny is that the body shaming kind of aspect of the, of the films. And you always have to have like one fat person and then one really short person, you know, that you could make fun of that aspect of them. And so there was an actor named um, Madeline Fields, and she was the designated fat character. And they would say things like, don't fall so hard. We'll, we, we'll be getting complaints from China. Yeah. Like, oh, that's, I mean, it isn't even funny. But the thing about Madeline Fields is she was really a smart person. She was very, very intelligent, really uh, well-read, well-educated. And she became um, Carol's best friend for life. She called her Fieldsy. <laughs> so you can watch the film and you can see Fieldsy. And... Uh, she actually became her financial advisor, uh, secretary, personal assistant. Wow. So they were really very close until Lombard married Clark Gable, in which case he just kind of became primary. Fieldsy ended up getting married herself around that time, so they, but they were still friends. Anyway, Senate really exemplified the eccentricity of Hollywood at the time and the kind of thing. So he would sit in a hot bath in the middle of his office and write scripts and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, that kind of that kind of weird stuff. So she spent two years with Senate, and really that was sort of where she got her real education and, and how to perform in front of the camera. One little nugget is the actual first film that she did with Clark Gable was called The Plastic Age, and it was Max Senate film. Now, they weren't in the same scene together, they, but they were in the same movie together. And... He played an extra as a college student. And the first shot you get of Gable, he's in the background, no shirt on. And his ears, he hadn't had his ears fixed yet, so they kind of stuck out a little bit. <laughs> and he was real thin, so that's really kind of funny. Uh, and he had these giant eyebrows, kind of like a big unibrow. Yeah. <laughs> funny. Hot, yeah. And she was a, had a small part in this film as well, bigger than his. She was in a college room party. So that's the first film they did together. So now we hit a point as she's coming to the end of the second year of her contract when the big technological shift is happening in Hollywood with the talkies. Caused huge upheaval. A lot of people left. Uh, people were worried about their voices. Uh, and apparently the, the studios were really pro-theater. They wanted to get theater actors in because they just said, well, they know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, these other people, they don't know how to talk. And so... Sometimes it could be an uphill battle to get hired as an actor if you weren't a, a stage actor because the students just didn't believe you could get in front of the camera and talk. Huh. It was just really kind of weird. Um, and so then that's why we get a lot of the stagey acting from this period instead of the more natural acting, which started finally to come in in the early 30s. We started seeing building. And then by the mid-30s, we had the Jimmy Cagneys, we had uh, Gary Cooper, we had uh, Carol Lombard, who were talking like regular people. 
her very first talkie that she was in was at the Pathé studio, and it was, uh, it really was actually in, 19, it was in 1928, I should say, and it was actually a, a film called Show Folks that was a hybrid. It was a film that had been made as a silent film. Talkies are coming in. A lot of theaters don't have any sound equipment to play sound films, so they're really trying to figure out how do we incorporate this to get the audiences to want to come in, but also not shoot ourselves in the foot with all these exhibitors. So what they would do uh, in order to uh, kind of walk the line is they would basically make a silent film, and then they would put in maybe a musical soundtrack and like 10 minutes of dialogue or something like that. That's what happened with the jazz singer. It was all silent, except for that, basically that one scene where he's singing. And that's what they did with this movie show folks that she was in. There were about 10 minutes of dialogue and they, they did that. And then when it, when the movie ran, she saw it and she ran out in tears crying because she was so horrified with what she saw oh, of no. herself. Yeah, she was really, really upset. But she got over it and just kept going and uh, ended up being successful with it. Um, in 1929, her next sort of really important movie on on her ladder was actually not a very good movie it's called big news which we watched and it was directed by again another really popular famous director at the time gregory lacava she met with him and she told him she thought the script stank which it did it did yeah it did don't don't watch it so what they did decided to do to help alleviate the the tedium of the script was that they would talk really fast and blah, 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 blah. And that would kind of keep it going, and people would not have time to kind of settle down and think about what they thought about it. And <laughs> it would just kind of pull you through the movie. It really didn't work that well. It was no His Girl Friday. Yeah, for sure. no, for sure. And it just was terrible. Uh, she was in it op- opposite an actor named Robert Armstrong. And if anybody has seen King Kong, he's the guy who says, Beauty killed the beast. That stupid line, man. So I know. But anyway, that's that actor. Very important uh, in theater history. And then she did a really interesting film called Fast and Loose in 1930. And it was written by Preston Sturgis. Anyway, he he had been writing a lot of films until he got to be a director. And this was one of them. So she was in this. And so obviously we're full into talkie land now in 1930. And she had a small part in it. And up, up until this point, as I said, she was Carol Lombard, just regular Carol. And the story goes that on one of the posters, they made a, a typographical error, and they put an E at the end of Carol. You know, she was just a bit player, or a, had a small part anyway. And they go, no, we're not reprinting these expensive posters for you. And this is how she is. She's like, okay, <laughs> live with it. And she goes, you know, actually, I kind of like it. I'm going to keep that. Nice. <laughs> and so she became Carol with an E Lombard. So at this point, she switched over from Max Senate to Paramount, which was hard for her because she didn't want to be disloyal to Senate, but she really needed to do it for her career, one, and also his silent comedies, I mean, sound was coming in, and he was like spiraling down business-wise, and she just really needed to get out. She felt badly about it, though. So she got to Paramount, and they decided they were going to build her up, and a lot of times they would like give a tagline, or they'd decide, oh, this is, this is your type. There weren't these generalists or char- even character actors always played the same characters. Uh, it was very, very restrictive. So they decided that she would be the orchid lady. 
Ooh. And she was going to be like elegant and orchids and, you know, and these, these, these flowers and everything and all these high fashion. And she just really hated it. It never really caught on because it, it really didn't mesh with her yeah. at all. That's just not her, her personality. And she just really hated it. She wanted to do different things and, you know, be lively and so forth. So 1931 is a big, important year for her because she does two films, Man of the World and Ladies' Man, both of which we watched. And this is where she met and starred up. Well, she didn't start opposite him in these films. She tended to be like a second lead, but she was acting with William Powell, he of the Thin Man. Yeah, we do love William Powell. We do love him. Not as much as somebody. I was reading on online, she said, oh, my love of William Powell is getting to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Very funny. It's causing problems in my life. So anyway, yes, we do love him. He's great. Just one of those actors who, very intelligent, very sprightly, really smart in the way he delivers dialogue. Had a long career. Oh my God, he acted until he died. He was in films in the 1960s. Wow. Yeah. He was in a film called Mr. Rogers with Henry Fonda. It was a pretty big hit. And he played not the lead. Of course, at that point, he's like second lead. Because in 1931, William Powell is 38 years old. Wow. Yeah. And she's 22. But they fall in love. He, he's got so much energy that it carries you through the difference without thinking too much of it. Yeah. He also looks useful. He doesn't look too old. Right. But. And he's super intelligent. And the thing is, is, I think she was attracted to that daddishness, that age difference kind of probably attracted her. Because she'd been dating guys like Howard Hughes. She dated <laughs> Joseph, Joseph P. Kennedy, who was JFK's father. He was a uh, studio head. At the time. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, he, he actually bought RKO. He was big in Hollywood at the time, as well as with the Mafia and, and in bootlegging. But <laughs> never mind. So anyway, she'd been dating. Yeah, so she'd definitely been dating a lot of guys. And Powell was into her. He loved her freshness, her unstudied vivacity. And I'm sure she loved his wit and his urbane quality. He was part of kind of this... I guess you'd call it a club. It was a sort of an informal club, like with people like Ronald Coleman and very high-class British actors in the British colony in Hollywood and get together and smoke cigars and do gentleman things together. And so he did end up marrying her, but he was, you know, he was 38. And he also, I think by his personality, he was not a go-outer-and-partier guy, despite his thin man Persona, Persona, yeah. yeah. So he wanted her to quit work and stay at home and be at home for evenings with him and making dinner and stuff like that. She just categorically refused. She was not going to do it. And that makes sense. I mean, she was in love with him, but she was 22, and she was just getting her career going, and that was her values. Also, I just think that the quality of their love was just not, at that point, all-consuming for her. He compromised and said, okay, you know, you can work. He allowed her to do it. Uh, but he also helped her. He educated her. He told her what to read. He explained things to her. He helped her with her roles. He gave her advice. You know, so he was a good guy. Yeah. You know, uh, he was old-fashioned, but he was a good guy. And he actually ended up uh, linking her up with his agent, uh, a guy named Myron Selznick. Myron Selznick was the bete noir of the studios because he represented people like William Powell and all the big, big stars. So he had a lot of power, and he hated the industry. So he was out to just ream the industry for every dime he could squeeze out oh, of interesting. it. He's the one who got these huge salaries for people. Basically, Myron Selznick's dad had been one of the 
founders of Hollywood. And he had gotten squeezed out of the studio. And Myron hated Hollywood for that ever after. So he became this hotshot agent. But his brother, David O. Selznick. I was wondering, yeah. Ended up going into the industry and making it where his father couldn't. And becoming huge, huge... uh, producer. Now there's a movie script for you. FYI, Gone with the Wind. Right. You know. And he's the one that Val Luton worked for, that drove Val Luton mad. So anyway. See our Val Luton episode. Yes. And you'll hear more about that. I just want to say hi. Yeah, no, yeah, I hear you. Believe me, I'm going to... So she was still struggling a lot because she didn't like to seeing herself on screen. And one time she just had this film that she was in and she hated it and she thought it stank. And, but she did it because she had to because of her contract. And so she was crying and she was upset. And so like he kind of like was able to steady her. Basically, she said, what he said to her was, Dear, you didn't want to do that picture. You hated everything about it. The hatred shows in your work. You didn't mold yourself to the circumstances and you suffered on screen because of it. Now, when you don't like conditions, you must learn to make the best of them. You can't let your inside affect your outside so that the camera can catch it. That's something she took to heart, and that was really, really good advice. So they did end up getting married in 1931. It sounds like they kind of almost had an open marriage the way she was talking, because, you know, oh, he goes off and he does what he wants to do, and I I go off and I do what I want to do, and then we come together. And I don't know. It, she was kind of hinting. It wasn't like a real rigidly monogamous relationship necessarily. Interesting. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. But she did say that, much as maybe she didn't want to, she became the housewife for Powell. She said she took care of his clothes, cooked his meals, ran the house. She said, I was the best fucking wife you ever saw. (laughs) (laughs) She learned how to do that. But even with this, them trying to compromise with each other and everything, the difference in their personalities and their periods in their lives, I think, she said that just their relationship began to chafe. And the other thing that began to chafe is just that she really wanted the career. And she did eight films in two years. In 1932 and 33, she did eight films. I mean, films had a fast turnaround. That was not terribly unusual, but it was still a lot. And he was doing films because he wanted his career to go, right? But he didn't want to give up his career. He didn't want to compromise that. Uh, So basically, they just really didn't see each other. So then in 1933, two years later, they just had a really friendly divorce. And she said... I must have liked the man or I wouldn't have married him in the first place. And so after their divorce, they dated on and off and they still saw each other socially and they called up every week and talked to each other about their work and what was going on and nobody was mad at anybody. So I thought that that was a really lovely way and it just showed the kind of person she was. And she was very influenced by Powell. And I think part of it is that she was very open to input and very willing to adapt herself. She even said that she's not a leader. She's, you know, somebody who kind of fits in. Like, for example, in one of her films, she changed the way she made her face up because she was wearing less eyeliner, not the big, gigantic eyelashes, not quite so much makeup uh, for the part. And a reviewer remarked that she looked so much better without the heavy makeup. And from that point on, she had changed her style and adapted the the lower level of makeup on, on screen because she read that and looked at herself and went, yeah, you're right. So that's the kind of person she was, and that made her pretty flexible and, and easy to get along with. So just a little wrap-up on Powell. As I said, he went on to have a very long career, but the next woman that he dated was Jean Harlow. See our Jean Harlow episode. 
We talk all about it. And she was, she was 19 years younger, so that's just his thing, I guess. And unfortunately, she died of Bright's disease in 1937. She was so young and really, really sad. And what's also sad is that by the time she died in 37, she was really great friends with Carol Lombard, Clark Gable. She'd been in Red Dust and several of those movies with Clark Gable that we talked about right, in our yeah. episode. Yeah, They like to prank together. Yeah, they really yeah. got along well together. And it was just they were just gutted when she died like that. And Gable was one of her pallbearers. And then Powell, in 1940, he married uh, a woman named Diana Lewis, who was also an actress. And one month after he met her, met Diana. And uh, they stayed married. She was 27 years younger than he was. And they stayed married and she just, she agreed to quit showbiz. Okay. So she was the woman. He finally found the right woman for him. 27 years, wow. As Carol's career started growing, there was a stage actor named Miriam Hopkins, who was there at the time. She was also blonde. She was not as tall as Carol. She wasn't as statuesque, but she was blonde, quick-talking, and she was from the the theater. So she had this great diction and kind of this very mid-Atlantic accent that she used, which all those sort of actors kind of did at the time. And she was kind of top of the heap. She was the A-lister. And so really, Carol built her career on the leavings of Miriam Hopkins. The... Uh, roles that Miriam didn't want, Carol would often take, and that's how she built her built her career. Or if the studio couldn't get Miriam, they go, well, let's get Carol Lombard. She's, yeah, blonde, you know, uh, similar in certain ways. And so, uh, you know, so where, where Carol was, she's very American, and there'd be this kind of thing where she would have this mumbling where she'd be talking under her breath and she'd be saying these lines and things that was so funny and so good and the timing would be so perfect. And then she would do other things where, like, if she was really uh, doing back-and-forth dialogue fast with somebody, she would be very good. But when she had to, like, emote, it, it's just terrible. Carol. Uh, whereas Miriam Hopkins, I thought I felt, is more stable throughout the range. She's, she's able to pull off all the levels of humor and uh, modes of delivery and so forth. And I think the only reason that Carol became so much more famous than Miriam ultimately was because Carol married Clark Gable. Yeah, that makes sense. Who was like the number one box off. Well, he was never number one. Apparently, he was number two after Rin Tin Tin, oh. who's a dog. <laughs> and Carol never let him fucking forget it. So essentially, um, for example, one of the films that Carol got was her first film with Clark Gable, which was No Man of Her Own in 1932. Carol got the lead in that opposite Clark Gable, which is when they first really met each other. And the only reason she got it is because Miriam Hopkins refused to be credited under Clark Gable's name. So she turned it down. And yeah. that's why Carol got it. If it sounds like she's in a lot of movies that have similar sounding titles, it's God, because they she do. is. Oh <laughs> Lots God. of movies with man something something about men in it. Exactly. It's very important to hear these things. So basically Carol is is starting to make her way. She's doing really well. She does come again up against she did it in high school but really even more in Hollywood. So much of the casting couch attitude. I mean her mother had protected her and her mother kind of gave her the uh, template for that she was valuable and that she doesn't have to do these kinds of things and so she didn't. 
I mean, she slept around because she wanted to when she wanted to, but not because she was trying to get a part or a role. Like a lot of, and I'm not dissing those actors who decided they needed to do that, male and female. Uh, you know, you need to do what you need to do, and it's your body, and you know, as long as you're an adult. Carol didn't, but there would be a lot of ass grabbing and just all kinds of stuff all the time. Men trying to push you into a corner. Carol decided that she needed to learn how to handle this. And what she determined was she noticed that men didn't like it when women cursed. Because at that time, it was not ladylike and it was unexpected. It was an aggression. It was aggressive. And women weren't expected to be aggressive. They were trained to be quiescent. And so she went to her brothers and asked them, teach me how to curse. And they didn't want to, obviously, because they're brothers. and blah, blah, blah. But she finally uh, convinced them to do it, to teach her every single curse word in the book. I mean, everything, no matter how bad, how dirty, whatever. And then they would practice. And after a while, her brothers were got, thought it was hilarious, and they really got into it. And so she would use that, and she was really brilliant the way she used it, because she figured out how to use it so that she was either using it for emphasis, and like with, I'm the best fucking wife in the world, but uh, and I bet she didn't curse with William Powell. I bet you she hardly ever cursed with him, because he's not the guy that that would work with. But like a Clark Gable, throw in some fucks and some goddams or some whatever, and what happens is, the, the working class kind of guys, because those are the ones who are expected to really curse. And that was kind of like the male domain, would go, oh, we don't have to be afraid of her. She talks like us, or she gets a man. And you know what I mean? She's like one of the boys. So that tomboyishness, basically the cursing was part of her tomboyishness. So she would use it that way. She would also use it aggressively. So someone wouldn't be expecting her to curse at them so they might grab her physically and then she would say something really really nasty and then whoa and that would shut it down so she really got to use it as a tool it wasn't indiscriminate and for for the sake of humor too so I we'll love see that she practiced really makes good. me think i should go practice yeah really <laughs> we'll see many examples of this coming up so this this boost here where she gets into no man of her own with gable they acted together i think it's a good movie i enjoyed it a librarian who she's in this town and it's all dull and she's got this really dull man who's interested in her and then this shyster this con man from the big town comes in in the form of Clark Gable and sparks fly and so on and so forth yeah I thought it was good too it's a fun one it doesn't finish as strongly as it starts but yeah well yeah well you know but there were no sparks between them at that time so remember 32 she's still married to William Powell they get along okay. This is what she said. We worked together and did all kinds of hot love scenes and everything, but I got no tremble out of him at all. He was just a leading man. So what? A hunk of meat. It didn't help that I was on my ear about a different number at the time. That's a little aside about... In 32, she it was an open marriage, and so it was not Powell that she was on her ear about. It was a guy named Russ Colombo who was a crooner. This was before Bing Crosby got really famous, so he was kind of, he and Bing were like the up-and-comers. And he he was considered to sound a lot like Bing Crosby, which I kind of think he did sound a bit like him. And he was called the Radio Valentino because he no. because of his, his Italian background or whatever. He was the 12th child of Italian immigrants. Wow. And we put a link in the show notes so you can go and listen to him sing because he had been in a few movies and he'd been recorded. I don't think he's any great. I think he just looks dull as dishwater to me. But she dug him. And it sounds like he was 
probably pretty nice, I guess. But later on, while she was married to Gable even, she was interviewed and uh, she said that he was the love of her life. They were very, very serious. And the interviewer said, oh, except for Clark Gable. And she said, ever. So like, oh, no, that can't be, you know, because the mythologizing of her marriage. And they were just very, in a very serious relationship. She got her divorce. And then in 34, the year after her divorce, it was looking like they were probably going to get married. And then the most unbelievable thing happened. Columbo, who's a young man, he goes to a friend's house and they're hanging out. And this friend has this antique gun collection. We see where this is going, right? And so there's this really old antique pistol that he picks up and they're looking at it. I can't remember whether it was Columbo or the friend, but one of them accidentally fired the pistol. They didn't know it was loaded. Fired the pistol. And no, what happens is the bullet goes out, ricochets off a piece of furniture and comes back into Columbo's eye and yeah. kills him dead. Unbelievable. I mean, it was such a terrible, terrible accident. And then, of course, Carol goes into a decline on that. And the guy's mother, she was a typical Italian mother. I mean, she loved her son so much. And she had a bad heart. The family were afraid to tell her that he had died. And remember, these are in the days where radio was still kind of new. And there's no TV. And so they kept it from her for 10 years. Oh, my God. And they told her he was touring. Yeah. And they, they would just play him on the radio or something. Yeah, and, 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 and probably send letters, you know, oh. to her or tell her they had a letter and oh read it to God, her or whatever. Oh, my God, that's awful. I know, that's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> For 10 years. And then she died, so then they didn't She have didn't to even know. She never learned. <laughs> oh, my God. I know, I know. So anyway, that was a little aside on Russ Colombo, and that was who she was into, and she and Gable. I mean, she didn't dislike him, but... So at the end of the filming, at the wrap party, she always would give gifts. And so she had had this big, beautifully wrapped box uh, and gave it to him, and Clark Gable. And when he opened it, there was a whole ham inside with his picture pinned to it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of thing she did. So anyway, they parted ways, and and Gable wasn't into her either, particularly at that time. He was having an affair with Joan Crawford at the time, and he was married. And he tended to marry older women. His first two wives were substantially older women who basically subsidized him. They paid for his ear operation and his clothes and basically his whole life. But anyway, Crawford, when they were having the affair, she said it knew it wasn't going to last. But they remained friends for their life, so it wasn't unamicable or anything like that. And so then uh, her career goes on and we'll uh, cover the rest of it and her best movies and her marriage to Clark Gable. In part two. Yeah. Bye, everybody. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Graham, she-